But if you will, open your Bibles now to 1 Peter chapter 1. We now return to our study there, 1 Peter chapter 1. And I will begin reading in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Pray with me, if you would. Father, no one is sufficient for these things. I pray as we examine Your Word that You would transform us. None of us are equipped to answer the question if we are hiding sin in our lives, if we have blind spots, if we have maintained an area in our heart where we are not willing to live holy like You are. We need Your Word, the penetrating insight of Your Word received through the care of the body of Christ to know where it is we need to repent and change and live according to who You've made us to be. We thank You that You have in fact caused us to be born again, all of us who trust in Jesus. And so we ask for grace and and great encouragement in order to live consistently with who we are. Would you pray now for yourself where you are in your heart that the Lord would strengthen you through His Word and give you great encouragement to live holy like He is. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Rock and our Redeemer. It's in Jesus' name, for his sake, that we pray these things. Amen. So again, we're returning to 1 Peter. We took a break for our annual State of the Pulpit sermon. This is the first Sunday every year. I try to set some type of vision moving forward and draw out some pastoral uh, application in a, in a more keen way than usual, and last week was Celebration Sunday. We had less time for the sermon than usual, and so we took uh, a look at Ephesians 4.32. Hope those messages were a blessing to you, but I am glad that we're back in First Peter and have space and time to drill down in this series that we're Just by way of recap... Peter has named us, or all the followers of Jesus, with some interesting titles. And the first one that he gives us in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 is elect exiles, which is intentionally uh, seemingly contradictory. Elect means chosen or chosen by God, brought to himself by his own will. And exiles obviously means rejected. So you're brought near by God, but you're also exiles. Exiles because of the world's activity. 
So you're welcomed and, and part of God's family, part of God's people, but you're also on the outside. You're, you're cast out by the world, elect exiles. And in verses 3 through 12, Peter unfolds for us just what it is that God has done. And the main thesis of that one long sentence in Greek is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's praising God and and calling on all who hear him, and perhaps even all creation, to give glory and praise and worth, adoration to God in view of all that he has done. There's no imperatives, no commands in verses 3 through 12. He just declares as a statement of fact all of these things that he has done and that he has done for us. And one of central significance, the first one he says is, he has caused us to be born again. And as a result of that one long sentence expounding for us everything that God has done of his own will, out of his mercy and grace towards us, he then summons us with the first command of the letter in verse 13. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the big therefore so far in the letter. Here's what one commentator said on this verse and how central verse 13 is. This isn't a sermon on verse 13. This is 14 through 16, but just... We're tying it back to the central significance of verse 13. This is what one commentator said. Peter's readers cannot resolve to make the hard ethical choices he will tell them to make if they do not have their minds fixed on the final outcome of that resolve. It's a beautiful sentence. And you need to understand it as well as a believer. You cannot live the way that God calls you to live unless your hope is set firmly fixed on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This life that we're commanded to live doesn't make any sense. It's too hard. And unless you have a vision for what God will do and what He has promised to do and what will actually happen at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you will have no central motivation for any of it. Fear isn't a sufficient motivator. Joy is hope. Hope being fulfilled. Many people walk around with dead hope. What the gospel offers us is real living hope. And he's summoning us now in verses 14 through 16 to live consistently with that hope. So you have to be armed with what verse 13 gives you because of what has happened in verses 3 through 12 so that you can do what verses 14 through 16 commands. That's how it all works together. And now Peter gets very specific as to what kind of life we should live. Since verse 13 is true, or given that we are seeking to set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, what type of people ought we to be? How do we live a life consistent with that hope? That's what he's answering. And before we get into it, I just want you to rejoice in the text. Because the Bible doesn't just let you answer that question yourself. So you've placed your hope in Jesus. You've received the benefits of justification and hope for the future. Now what? And if we were left to our own devices and our own wisdom, my guess is that we would have as many ways of answering that question as there are people. 
The Bible doesn't let us do that. And that's a good thing because, I don't know about you, but especially through adolescence and up through early adulthood, it's just a big question mark. What am I going to do with this life? What am I going to do? What's, ma- what's important? What am I supposed to be chasing after? What, what should matter to be most? And the Bible, at odds with our culture, answers that question for you. Tells you exactly how you're supposed to live consistently with God, with what God has done in you. So rejoice in the text. The law of the Lord is perfect. It gives you everything you need for life and godliness. And this passage that we're looking at today, verses 14 through 16 of 1 Peter chapter 1, is very central and clarifying as to what God expects of us. There is so much comfort in a confusing world that tells you to follow your dreams. Have you seen my dreams? Now, what, what, what are we actually telling people to do? You can just flip through a Disney coloring book, as I did recently. Zoe was very good to color these different Disney princesses, and beneath each one of them was a statement of some kind. So-and-so princess, just insert whichever one you want, never questions herself. So-and-so princess, whoever it is, always follows her dreams. So-and-so princess, whatever it is, knows that she's strong. Like, what... Uh, What is this? This is encouraging us to chase after whatever it is you want. Don't listen to what the Word of God says. Don't don't be confined to the restrictions of commands of a deity. Pursue what you want. That is our culture. It is the leftovers of existentialism, if you want to know. So You can rejoice in the text. You can be happy that God has told you exactly what to do. So, I want you to see context from the beginning of of verse 14, really through the middle of chapter 12 of 1 Peter. Peter is unfolding for us what life in the family of God really looks like. What does it mean to be a part of the family of God? He uses family of God or temple of God, all these different images, borrowing from the Old Testament, of course, that speak about Israel. And he's saying, okay, because you are this... Because you are part of God's family, how should you then live? That's how his logic really works from here until the middle of chapter 2. So, let's enter in and see what the first really practical command is in 1 Peter. I'll read it again for you. Verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The first theological idea we are given as a backdrop for this first command, if you will, first practical command in the text, is that of adoption or sonship. This is where we get the image or metaphor of family. We are, be, we are made by the work of God. We are made into children of God. We share the status of sonship through our relationship with Jesus, our union with Him. It makes us not just be children or, or second or third or fifth or fourthborn, whatever. It makes us firstborn because we're united to the firstborn. This is a major theme throughout the New Testament, being sons of God, even in the Old Testament. 
borrowing from the prophets. That's how the New Testament authors write. But here's one of my favorite passages that talk about this glory of sonship from 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as He is pure. You see right there in that text, this idea of sonship or being a son of God, a child of God, is connected immediately with the idea of purity or holiness. It's the same theme in our text today. So he calls us obedient children. And he doesn't just say as obedient, as, as children. He doesn't just say as children. He modifies it with obedient. So here's a question we need to ask and kick around a little bit in your brain. Is there such a thing as an obedient child of God other than Jesus? We would have to say, not in totality. This is what Paul says in Galatians 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. He's describing the situation of a believer who has been born again. That within you is the principle of the flesh and the principle of the Spirit by the work of the Spirit, and they're at odds. As I say that, probably you can identify in your life that conflict going on and on to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. That's Christian reality. However, there is so much hope in transformation. The transformation that God has worked in us by His Spirit. The question is, is there such a thing as an obedient child of God other than Jesus? Not in a technical sense because we still sin. However, we have been changed at the very heart level. Total depravity is not the only thing that is true of you anymore if you're in Christ. And in fact, if you are in Christ, there's a sense in which total depravity doesn't apply to all of you. There is something in you John says it this way, God's seed abides in you. There is something in you that is very true, you of you, that does trust in the Lord, that is not polluted. Your faith can't be polluted or it's not genuine faith. We can doubt, but that is not what is most basic and most true of us because of the work of God through the miracle of the new birth. So there's so much hope. We can take this statement, though, in two ways. He says, as obedient children. So two ways to take it. One way, I think you can take it this way, though I think it's less supported, is consider the behavior of an obedient child and act like that. It's rare to encounter a child who does exactly what their parent says in any given situation, but I've seen a few. I don't know how the parents worked that out, and maybe the child is just maniacal and planning to uh, usurp later on. I don't know. But you've seen an obedient child, or maybe your child for a season, 15 minutes, has been obedient. 
And when you see that behavior, you look at that and you see that they're, they're, they're wanting to please their parents or you or whatever the situation is, and the, Peter may be drawing our attention with that behavior, that style of living, however long that is, be like that towards God. But I think there's a better way to take this. Well, I would say that's true. The second way is you have been made into an obedient child from the heart. So, as we will see in a bit, act consistently with who you are. You are now an obedient child of God if you are truly in Christ. This relates to parenting or the strategy of parenting so much that what you're trying to do is to not get outward conformity to certain behaviors. You should parent with an aim to gain the heart of your child. And you can see the difference. Even if a child still struggles with disobedience, you can tell the difference between a child where you have their heart and a child where you don't have their heart. And sometimes the child where you don't have their heart will be outward in conformity to what you want them to do. They're just becoming more and more of a legalist and a Pharisee all the while. We don't want that. We want to go after the heart. And that's what God has done for you. He has gained your heart. He has won your heart through the miracle of the new birth. He has caused us to be born again. This is your new reality. You are an obedient child if you trust in the Lord Jesus. So, this is how even Jesus Himself is spoken of in the psalm. Uh, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. We talked about this when we went through Hebrews. This this obedience that Jesus demonstrated in his life, the obedience that we're called to, is, is, a, is a ready, an eager readiness to hear. That's when you know you have your child's heart, if they demonstrate an eager readiness to hear. And that's what God has given us. He's worked in us an eager readiness to do what our Father wants us to do, an eager readiness to hear what he has to say and to please him. So if you encouragements and exhortations connected to this first statement, obedient children. Is this you? At the very bottom, I'm not talking about whether or not you sin. I'm talking about what is at the bottom when you go, yeah, but why? Yeah, but why? Deeper and deeper and deeper into your own heart. What is there at the bottom? Is it a desire to please the Lord? Or is it to please yourself? I understand the struggle to live consistently with that. The flesh is powerful and temptations abound. But when everything else is stripped away, what is really there at the core? Do you understand that to answer that question is part of the reason why the Lord brings us through trials? This is one sense of testing that He afflicts us so that we can see that is in fact what is true of me at the very bottom. I want to please the Lord. And if He has brought you through affliction and you find at the very bottom, yeah, I, re- I, I just don't. You need to be born again, dear friend. You need to meet the Lord Jesus and trust in Him. And if it is there, if at the very bottom, if you can see it, yes, it's, it's, it's often not lived consistent in my life. I, I'm drawn off sides by many temptations and trials and, and whatever else. And, and 
The flesh is still at war with the Spirit, but if at the bottom you see, yes, at the very base of what I am, I want to please the Lord, then take courage. God is at work. He's not going to lose you. You're one of His obedient children. And I want to give an exhortation to the young people in this room. You, you need to make a shift. This is important. Growing up in Christian homes, the majority of you, you need to make a shift from, sure, Jesus is real, to a very simple and very personal, I want to please the Lord Jesus. That's a universe of difference. So the first thing he says, as obedient children is... Don't go back to who you were. This is how he says it. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The first imperative of the letter was a positive command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now we get a negative command. Now we get to the place where it's really specific. Verse 13 in many ways is a heading, right? All the rest that he says through to about the middle of chapter 2 is explaining what verse 13 looks like in your life. So the first really specific command he gives us is negative. And this is a bit surprising to me. It's a little interesting. Instead of just saying, be holy, which he says in a little bit essentially, he wants us to not do something first. Again, I think it's just fascinating. Why? Why why give us a negative command first? Before telling us to be holy, don't do this. When I was a teenager, I don't know if those of you who have been around here for a long time might guess this, but I tried to be somewhat of a neat freak. And one of the things I did all the time was clean out the shop of my dad. And it was basically the shop, if you if you have a shop, if you know about having shops, that's where just it's like a black hole. Everything just ends up there. Uh, trash or useful things or not useful things or otherwise. And so I would just go to war against the mess in the shop. And I I developed a a paradigm, a a hierarchy, an algorithm of how to clean it most effectively. And the first thing, you can apply this to your house if you want to, the first step in cleaning anything is to remove the trash. Get rid of the trash. And I think that is why he gives us this negative command first. Don't go back to the trash. The yucky stuff. Get rid of that, and then you can consider the path of holiness. Just telling us, be holy, or, or to relate it to my example, just clean the shop. Uh, that may be discouraging. And maybe you're discouraged right now in your pursuit of holiness. Maybe you're just holding on by a thread, and it's if I can just get to Sunday, if I can just get to discipleship group, if I can just get to growth group, whatever it is, if I, if I can just hold on until then, maybe you're that discouraged in your pursuit of holiness. Just focus on this. Don't be conformed to your former ways of feeling and thinking. That's what he's saying. Again, those who are truly sons and daughters of God have been given desires to please the Lord from the heart. So our task is very often just this basic. Not to go back to the pig trough. Not to go back to the mess. Not to be the dog that returns to its vomit. Not to not be like the fool who returns to his folly. So if we can do that, 
Very often then, the Spirit Himself is at work as we are saying no to the former ignorance, and He produces in us works of obedience as we do that. Conversely, the quickest way to derail your progress in holiness is to let your mind go back to these ignorant passions, whatever they are. So, what are they? What what are these things that we're not supposed to be conformed to? The passions of your former ignorance. And understand this, it starts in your heart and mind. Speaking precisely, it is conformity to the old way of the flesh. That's what it is. That putting, letting, letting yourself go back to your former manner of ignorance, that is beginning to live in a way that is consistent with the flesh. There are some abuses of this phrasing here. There, there have been Christian asceticism or monasticism. Uh, there are even teachings against passion itself. It's, the passion is not the problem. It, it is ignorant passions. Zeal, passion, romantic, and erotic love, all in the context of marriage, of course, are all encouraged by the Bible. The problem isn't passion. We need to be careful and clear here. The former ignorance, though, here being referred to as this, a life lived or a mindset that is in line with or an attitude that is without the knowledge of God. Here's how uh, Karen Jobes put it, uh, puts it in her commentary on 1 Peter. In these verses, Peter initially defines the call to be holy by specifying the opposite of what he means. Do not be conformed as previously to the desires of your ignorance. In other words, to be holy requires a change in one's way of life from before, when one's behavior was determined by unrestrained impulses to sin. Even in ways accepted by society, God's call that has brought Christians to Christ is also a call to deny those sinful impulses and abstain from certain social customs and practices, making one a stranger within one's own society. So you see how this idea of exile is now overlapping with this idea of holiness, that as you seek to be holy and devote your life to the Lord and to live your life for Him, you become a stranger in the world. The world doesn't know what to do with us insofar as we are living obediently to our Father. So, these passions of our former ignorance, again, connecting it to verse 13. The former ignorance would be a life lived that doesn't acknowledge that verse 13 is going to happen. Without the knowledge of, of all that God has done of verse, in verses 3 through 12. So, what are these passions of our former ignorance in light of that? Well, here's just a few. Greed. Because a consuming passion for the accumulation of wealth only makes sense if Jesus isn't coming back. Or lust. Because a life lived li- chasing Carnal pleasures of the flesh as your goal only makes sense if Jesus isn't coming back. Bitterness, because a life lived holding grudges and becoming embittered towards others and not forgiving only makes sense if Jesus isn't coming back. That's the question. The ignorance is is a resistance to believe that what God 
has said is going to happen on the last day isn't really going to happen so we can just live however we want. Even if that is very morally upstanding. But none of that makes sense if, in fact, Jesus is coming back. And there are many other examples we could go through. I'll trust that you will do so. But here's how Paul summarizes it. Galatians 5, 19-21. You should know this passage well. Now the works of the flesh are evident. These, these, are the, these are the passions of the former ignorance that don't make any sense if Jesus is coming back. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He would clarify in in the letters to the Corinthians, and such were some of you, but you were washed. So he's saying, don't go back to that way because that's not a life consistent with all of the hope that you're supposed to have for what God is going to do when Christ returns. And this is why the Spirit is called the Spirit of adoption, because He works in us the right passions, those that are in line with the truth. He gives us zeal for the things of the Lord because He convicts us in our conscience that yes, in fact, Jesus is coming back. God will make good on all of His promises. He is faithful. And so the desires that come out of that are the desires that are pleasing to the Lord. Those passions are the passions you should live consistently with. Not the passions of your former ignorance. So behave in a way that is fitting to your new identity. And then he grounds it. He, he, now he comes to stating it in the positive. So he says, don't be conformed to your, your former passions of ignorance. Rather, or but, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So don't do that. Don't, don't give in to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't go down those roads again. Don't return to your own vomit. Don't be the pig that returns to the, the, the trough. Don't be the fool that returns to his own folly. Rather, be holy. And notice again, he doesn't just say be holy with no qualifications and no clarity or motivations. He grounds the call of holiness on the character of the one who called us. Why should we be holy? Because the one who called you into this is holy. The context in verses 1 through 2 tell us that the one he's referring to here, the one who called us, is God the Father. Which is significant because he's not talking about the call to ministry. Or, or, or even someone preaching and calling you to repent and believe in Jesus. He's talking about the Father Himself who has called us into this relationship, making us His sons and daughters. So the meaning of calling here, I, I, I want to say this because the vast majority of places that this word occurs in the New Testament is not talking about your, your calling or your vocation or what you want to do with your life. It is being called to belong to God and to live for Him in purity and love. I, I, I say that, I know that's somewhat of an aside, but especially for young people, adolescents, people want to tell you you've got to find your calling. No, you don't. 
It's right here. You're called to be holy like your heavenly Father is holy. That's it. And there is so much that you need to do underneath that heading that really to set any other type of goal for your life or vast plans for your life, it really just gets in the way. I'm not saying don't plan. I'm not saying chase a career path. I'm saying your number one treasured goal should be to please your heavenly Father in holiness. A lot of confusion and a lot of wasted time and energy and resources could be saved if we could get that in the church. So God is holy. And this is the ground of the Bible's summons to us to be holy. Be like your heavenly Father. So for, for a bit, I want us to ponder the holiness of God. This, this is a message, right? Un- understand this. This is a message trying to encourage you to live holy, right? That, that should be the main point with a text like this. Be holy like God is holy. So, so at the end of this message, if, if you're more encouraged to live a holy life and you're, you're, you're discouraged or, or drawn away from going back to your former manner of ignorance, then that's a win. But the way that we do that isn't just to say over and over and over, be holy, be holy, be holy, and to tell you all the things you have to do in order to be holy. Rather, I think the way this text works is to point our gaze upwards and to consider the holiness of the one who has called us. And that, in fact, may be the missing piece in your pursuit of holiness. You are just focusing on the acts themselves and trying to wring obedience out of that dry rag. And there's nothing else to squeeze because you have not set your gaze on the holiness of the one who called you. So for these next few moments, I want us to consider the holiness of God. 1 Samuel Verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. There is only one holy one. And I thought high and low to find a beautiful line, a quote of some kind from a a better preacher, a better writer, a better pastor, a better man to put in, in sublime wording in powerful and memorable ways, just what we mean, what the Bible means, all together in a full and rich sense when we speak about the holiness of God. But every quote I found, even if it was from a very astute theologian, was missing something. They all said true things, aspects of His holiness, but not the fullness of it. This is very important, to be stunned, to stand speechless as your mind beholds the holiness of God is the true starting point. The starting point of what? Yes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To see Him, to to behold His holiness, that's where it all starts. And I fear that many of us have gone on for a long time in our lives, even after coming to know the Lord, without pondering long and peering into the holiness of our God. So, I will try. A lesser teacher, a lesser preacher, a lesser man to pull together words and phrases and be so memorable and sublime that you too may stand for just a moment in awe of the holiness of God. Where to begin in describing 
the holiness of one who had no beginning. He has always been. And he is, he exists by sheer act of will. He is because he wills to be. This is the most basic meaning of his name. I am. And yet, at this beginning point of who he is, he is already beyond our comprehension. How can we use finite words to describe one who is infinite? His very dwelling place is eternity, which means that all of time and space, past, present, and future, is not glorious enough to house him. He does not just know about the farthest reaches of all past, present, and future, and everything that ever will be, but He is there. He is the one who is dwelling even now at the end of eternity. Which even to utter that sentence, and to understand what is being conveyed by it, breaks the brain. Who would dare to describe one so holy, so pure, and just with words and thoughts derived by man? He will dissolve the heavenly bodies, even the stars, by the mere touch of His glorious and purifying fire. The one whom no man can see and live Can we use mere words to paint a portrait even close to a faithful representation of Him? Do we have even the slightest strength to ponder what even a moment of His mind and perspective would be? To know someone, you have to be able at some way to to get inside their perspective, to, to, to put on their shoes and walk around and to see things from their perspective. But every moment, every instance of God's perspective is filled with a vibrant awareness and a specific will towards all things that ever were or ever will be. And it is that will, that very will, that is the basis of their existence. And what shall we say of God's Moral purity. It is almost an unfathomable thing. There is no standard of holiness or rightness or justice outside of God to which He adheres. Things are just and right and holy because He delights in them. And He delights in them because they accurately represent and honor Him. Holiness then is utterly mysterious. God being who He is and creatures being like Him. But consider this. He is who He is and He is as He is because He wills to be as He is. He's always been exactly who He wills to be. And He will always be exactly what He has willed to be because his own self-determination is perfect. Consider the Lord God, the one who is there in this way. 
to, to even set your mind on it is, is as glorious as it is terrifying. To set your eyes, the eyes of your mind, on such a being. But it's only logical that there is such a being is necessary, not as a matter of faith, but as a matter of fact. We know that there is such a being there. We try to suppress it in our sin. That's the only way we can muster up the courage to rebel against such, such a one, is to deny in some way that there is such a being there. We also know that he is not in some far off place, some other dimension, but he is closer to us than we are to ourselves. For it's all His will and His knowledge that sustains and causes to exist not only our physical bodies, but our soul. He knows you better than you will ever know yourself. His knowledge and power is intimate and personal. And it's all based in His will that every facet of you should exist. And he is causing you to exist in the way that you are by sheer act of will right now, every moment. That's who our God is. He knows you not as a matter of discovery, but in the way that a builder or a painter would know every single piece or amount of paint or pigment that they would use in their work. He had in this case, he even created those things. To say that God is holy is to affirm this one simple truth. He is different. He is everlasting to everlasting and always other. He is outside. He is beyond. He is above. He is farther. He is higher. He is more. He is separate. He is transcendent and imminent. He is independent and sustaining all things. He is Holy. This is what we mean. Not just that He does good things or never sins. He is different. This is what the cherubim and seraphim are saying when they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. They're saying we're out of words. We don't know how to describe this being. He is different than you think. Different than you think. Different than you think. Bigger. More glorious, more powerful than you can conceptualize ever. So, it should be obvious then. It should be clear as day that to live one's life fully submitted to and honoring and enjoying this holy God is the only thing to be done. There is no other logical choice. If such a being exists or since such a being exists, then living a holy life is the only thing that makes any sense at all. Anything less is not just sin in some sense of breaking rules, but it is insanity. It is declaring war against, it is rejecting, it is rebelling against this most marvelous and matchless and magnificent God. Hell exists Because that is what existence is, separated from this God. Heaven exists because that is what existence is like, fully in fellowship with this God. 
And all of this, everything I've said, our best efforts to behold Him with the eyes of our hearts, all of it is but the outskirts of His ways. These are but the fringes. That's why heaven needs to be eternal so that you will come to know more and more this holy God. So, you be holy because the one who called you is holy. One way to understand the point of the gospel and all of Christianity, this, this, this massive scheme that, that the Father, Son, and Spirit have contrived together to accomplish to bring people to Himself, this plan unfolding for all time is that you may share His holiness. There are at least three senses that we can understand holiness. And again, I want you to have this rich, full understanding of God's holiness so that when someone says, you be holy for, for your heavenly Father is holy, I don't want you to think, yeah, I shouldn't do bad things. Holiness means so much more. Obviously, it means not sinning. But there are three senses. The first we will address is this, is to be morally pure. God has called us to be holy, and part of that means that we should be pure. This is from the Revelation to John, chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You becoming what you will be at the revelation of Jesus Christ, none other than the bride of Christ, is to be clothed with righteous deeds. That wedding gown that you will wear to be brought to the Son of God for that marriage that will be consummated there in the ever after will be your righteous deeds. You are called to be pure, a pure bride. The second sense of holiness for us in light of God's holiness is that we are called to be different, just like He is different. This is from Leviticus chapter 20. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But as I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. God calls us to be holy, to be different from the world, separated out from the world. In fact, to be exiles, that we're not to be like them. And with the exception of what we do on Sunday, for the most part in this nation, there's almost no difference. To be different. We do things differently in the kingdom of God. Do you understand? And we must also, this is the third sense, so morally pure, different, and consecrated. This is from Exodus 19. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenants, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're not just called to be holy, to be different, and to never do anything bad. You're called to be holy so that you may serve the Lord. You're consecrated to the priesthood of God. This is where Peter is going. In chapter 2 specifically, we are the building blocks of the temple and we are the priests who minister in the temple of God. He has consecrated us and that's what holiness means. And then he modifies it again. Be holy for the one, as the one who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Why would we need to clarify that here? Why that point of clarity? I think it is easy to leave some part of your life off limits to God and His call. Some examples may be a pet sin that you have coddled. Maybe your personality or things that you think are essential to you but you know aren't ideal or are not pleasing to the Lord. Maybe your goals and your dreams, your use of your free time, any other thing. Peter summons us, not just be holy on Sundays, not just be holy when other people are watching, not just be holy in front of your kids so that they don't call you on your own hypocrisy. Be holy in all your conduct. Everything. And that only makes sense in light of God's holiness. He's not holy just on Sundays and Wednesdays. He's always holy. So we must be like Him. God's calling on your life is to be holy, and more precisely, to be holy in everything. All of it consecrated over to Him. We're going to sing about this in a bit after we conclude. Take my life and let it be always, only, all for Thee. This is either a joy or a burden, and I can't reach your heart and tweak it one way or the other, whether this is going hearing this and the summons to be holy is a joy or a burden. But what you believe about the future, what you believe about the last day, will determine whether or not this call to be holy is a joy or a burden. Consider the ark while the door was yet opened. Just imagine if you're in that situation and it's it's open, the rain's starting to fall, and, and someone, one of Noah's sons, is like, hey, you know, we still got a spot for you. If you want to show up, you can come in and join us on the ark. And he said, well, let me go grab my stuff. And whoever it is, Shem, Ham, or Japheth, they're like, no, 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 the door's closing. You don't understand. Everything's about to be destroyed. No, I want to go get my stuff. I, I, I have these friends, I have these other things that I got to make sure I got to get into the ark as well. It's like, we don't have any time. The world is ending. That is the summons to holiness for us. What else are you going to do with your stuff? What are you going to do with your time, your life, your pursuits, your goals, your energies, your money? Be holy in all your conduct because that is the way of life that only makes sense if in fact Jesus is returning. Because the world is going to end. And He will judge the living and the dead. Then he grounds it in the Old Testament. As it is written, or since it is written, verse 16, 
You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is from Leviticus, probably chapter 11. Here's here's what it reads if you were to turn there in the ESV. For I, the Lord, your God, for I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And he's taking this idea that was originally said to the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, and he is applying it now to those who trust in Jesus. You be holy, for God, your God, is holy. Instead of saying, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, we could just say it this way. For I, the Lord... For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. For I, the Lord, am the one who sent my Son, Jesus, to die for your sins, that you may have life. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And it is now possible to do this. You may be seeing in yourself, this, this, is, this is an impossible goal. I can't see how I could render out of my heart this level of holiness to be morally pure, to be different from the world, and to be consecrated to the service of God, but this is made possible. You need to know this by the promises of the new covenant. The failure of the old covenant to create a holy people for God was not because there was something wrong with the laws that were being commanded. It was that the law had no power to change your heart. The law, Paul tells us, arouses the flesh. When we hear God's command without the new heart, we just want to disobey more. Have you seen that at work in your kids? That's what happens. That was the failure of the first covenant. The new covenant, the promise that we have, that we are under because of the coming of Jesus is, I will give you a new heart so that you will obey. That is, in many ways, what the Gospel is all about. God has been seeking to create a people for Himself from the beginning, before the beginning. And what we're in is the final stage of that process where Jesus Christ, sending the Spirit on the basis of His death and shed blood, now changes the heart's at an individual level, so that we want to be God's holy people. No longer by birth, who your great-great-great-great-grandfather is, no longer by where you were born, or how rich you are, but by receiving the Holy Spirit, being born again. If that is not you today, if you find in yourself no spiritual resources to even want to live a holy life like this, you must be born again. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are holy. There is no shadow or shifting in You due to variation or change. You are always different, separate. You're not like us, and we thank You for that. Give us now the strength and the resolve by Your Spirit to be like You. We be marked as a holy people in the earth, especially in these days of darkness and uncertainty. May the banner that we raise be one of holiness, one of our personal freedoms, not of trying to get 
ahead in life or to save or to do anything that might be respectable but holiness. May it be so for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen.